Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we are talking five things diabetes with Heike Krauser, who is the clinical nurse consultant and a credentialed diabetic educator here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Heike. Hi. Excellent. I'm really excited for this topic because um, it's something that was heavily requested by new grads right through to sort of the that up to five year, which is our kind of bread and butter target market. Um, we'd love to get to know a little bit about you and your nursing journey that's got you to where you are in your career now. I have been exceedingly fortunate in landing into a nursing position, although a diabetes educator can be an allied health position. Um, by pure serendipity and some very good managers and mentors, this is a professional joy. Diabetes educators die on the job and that's why students get very frustrated. Very few jobs come up because diabetes educators stay in them. We do not leave. Because you love it so much? Yes. Yeah, that's great. It is an, oh, it's an enormous privilege to be a diabetes educator. People with diabetes let you into every aspect of their lives. Diabetes affects every single part of a person's life. And the access that our patients give us into who they are and their whole living and lifestyle is humbling and a privilege. That's fantastic. So you've clearly landed where you're meant to be. One yes. of the things one of the things is a lot of our listeners are at points in, in their early career where you're going, wow, is this all there is? Like is this grind of like the COVID of all the extra complexity, the workload getting getting just piled on. That's the, that's where they've started. Can you t- can you rewind a little bit? Where was your start point, and what are those kind of sparks uh, spark points along the way that have landed you in a job that you're saying you're quite happily die well, doing? Well, joyous, I think, yeah. is the word yeah. you yeah. use. Look, yeah, I, I've, I'm you know I'm, I'm getting goosebumps because that's exactly how I started. I was working. Uh, I, I started my career actually um, working in a psychiatric hospital, which gave me some really good insights into. Um, people's psychological states and working with where people are at in, a, in different mental states. Um, but at the time, I was working on a very heavy medical ward, as they can be, lots of CVAs and um, heart attacks and uh, all those heavy medical issues. And I, I looked down the corridor to a nurse who would probably be my age now, maybe a little bit older, uh, grey hair, <laughs> and she was a superb nurse. She 
was a nurse that everybody would want to have looking after you very I'll put in commas old school you know the the turns and the washes and that gentle touch and that gentle voice and always asking how you where how you are as well as your physical cares but I looked down that corridor and thought I don't think I can be here doing this at that age I don't mm. think that's for me and just at that same time, there was a, another nurse on the ward who was doing the Diabetes Educator course. And look, it sounds really silly and basic, but I thought, hmm, that's a time frame of a postgrad that I could do. And yeah, I can afford this. This is, I think I might do this. Yeah. Um, and that's really how it started. And then, as I said, pure serendipity, just the Diabetes Educator who was um, on in the hospital that I was at at the time, took maternity leave just at the time that I'd finished my course. Perfect. I had some fabulous um, mentors at the time as well and some marvellous managers who enabled things for me. And yeah. Here you are. Off. Mm. <laughs> How exciting. So we're go- let's start with your five things because this has been one of our most requested podcasts so far. No pressure. Yes. So number one. Know your pathophysiology. Can you talk us through that, please? Yes. <laughs> this is so important. The correlation of the liver or hepatic glucose response and pancreatic endocrine response um, with insulin and how they co-communicate and balance out. It is not about food. It is about the communication or the lack of communication balance between um, yeah, the pancreas and the liver essentially. Yeah. yeah. Inefficiencies or non-functioning. Hmm. Which is a very different like message that is out there and, and in that oversimplified sort of oh, too much sugar, too much this, um, too much fats. Um, I mean, obviously that all plays into the modifiable components of the disease management as well, to a degree. some forms of diabetes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm. But, um, but it can often get clumped to get all together in a, in a big mess and not, not brought back to that organ function. In the, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So to take us back to basics, <laughs> what is a normal you know, blood glucose, sugar, like what, what is, what should be looking for? At what point do people get diagnosed with diabetes? And the other thing I would like to hear a lot more about is like, what's the difference between type one and type two diabetes? And some of, I guess, some of the confusion you would hear um, either in the community or even in our hospital, things that people just don't understand. Right, there's a few things in there and I might need to get you to break them down again, but I'll start with, um, the types of diabetes, yeah. and because this is one of the, I suppose, uh, lack of understandings, is that everyone kind of knows about type 2 diabetes, but it does get a little bit confused with type 1 diabetes. Oh, that's the bad diabetes or the worst diabetes. Um, but there are many types of diabetes. There is type 1 diabetes, which is that autoimmune destruction of the, the insulin-making cells in the pancreas, which can happen in childhood, used to be called juvenile diabetes, or it can happen at any time across the lifespan, and that's important to remember. Um, type 2 diabetes, 
really important to know that there is a genetic factor and component in that right. along with lifestyle factor component as well. So you have a genetic predisposition and for some people it's stronger, for some people it's weaker. So yeah, for some people, um, type 2 diabetes, that genetic component might be a little um, stronger, but so they might actually be like normal weight and be fairly active, but they still have type 2 diabetes. Other people, there are those added lifestyle factors of having central obesity and being overweight, not being very active, that plays a big part in how they may need to look and manage the diabetes. So there's no type 1, that, that's not a genetic predisposition? There, there, or? there is a genetic predisposition, but there also needs to be a sort of almost what's called, I call it a perfect storm. Okay. You need to have a genetic predisposition and be susceptible at a particular time of life which triggers this autoimmune response, which is the either very rapid, generally in children it happens fairly quickly, or a much more gradual, longer uh, destruction of the beta cells that produce insulin. But there, are, um, there is type 3C diabetes. Now, this diabetes is what we call pancreatogenic diabetes. So this can be, um, say, cancers of the pancreas or other issues with the pancreas where perhaps pancreas, part of the pancreas has to be removed or perhaps the whole pancreas has to be removed. Now, this is actually really complex because not only do we lose what we call the endocrine function, which is insulin and glucagon hormones, but they also lose the digestive hormones or the exocrine function of the pancreas. And this is then, so people are not only adjusting insulin, but they're also adjusting digestive enzyme tablets mm. and things like this. And this is really complex. Then we have, and this is increasing quite, I would say exponentially, um, with new and novel um, treatments for cancer and graft-versus-host disease. We have a lot of what we call steroid-induced diabetes. So right. people on high-dose steroids causing an inefficiency where blood glucose levels then rise and need to be controlled by other medications. So can I ask, if you got a steroid-induced uh, diabetes, is that for life then? Like once you stop the steroids, does the diabetes... You know, like, does it resolve or or once you get it, that's a lifelong course? It depends. Right, okay. Because uh, what it may highlight, and this is what happens in gestational diabetes, is you have a genetic predisposition. And if you have that genetic predisposition, perhaps this is that sort of a, a trigger of where type 2, or I'm doing little quotes here yeah. in the air, um, diabetes occurs. Uh, for others, where it is actually... Um, they have no genetic predisposition perhaps, then perhaps the um, levels, glucose levels actually may go back to normal. So normal glucose level ranges, it fluctuates all the time. And this is another thing. Often um, with diabetes, people say, oh, I need to get back to six, and they're talking about one target. No, normal blood glucose level is a range. It fluctuates, and that range is essentially 4.0 to 8.0 millimoles of litre per litre in the blood. Now, that is normal pathophysiology. We know with diabetes, 
to try and achieve that is really difficult. Um, so again, it's making realistic targets and individualised targets for people with, and um, uh, the the aim is that we keep levels above four, but most of the time, so ideally around seventy percent of their time in um, of their blood glucose levels being in range under ten. Mm. So over four, less than ten millimoles per litre. And I feel like we've loaded a lot into this point one, but it's a, it's <laughs> the foundation of the the discussion, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah. You. You need to understand it so that you can explain it and provide the rationale for your patients because if they do not understand what and why you are asking them to do what you're asking them to do, which is pretty confronting, it's taking handfuls of tablets if you have type 2 diabetes or it's jabbing yourself with an insulin injection maybe up to five or six times a day plus doing finger prick levels, although we'll talk about that in a, in a little while, and that is not natural. Mm. People do not like jabbing sharp bits of metal into themselves. Yeah. Um, so you need to be able to provide the rationale. We get this, um, often we get referrals of people being non-compliant. Now, People are not non-compliant. People want the best for themselves. They want their best health. They want to be able to manage the diabetes well to keep themselves healthy. But they need to be able to understand and know. And often this non-compliance is because they don't see the reason. They don't yeah. see the rationale of why this is of benefit and why this is going to be helpful. Yeah. But they feel the burden of the the load of doing it, the medications, the injections, the Absolutely. checking. So. It is a huge burden, yeah. the burden of what we call chronic disease. Yeah. And it's been uh, calculated out that people, particularly with type 1 diabetes and even people with type 2 diabetes who are using insulin in the same way, have over 180 extra decisions in life. Every single day. Every day. 180. Every day. Extra wow. decisions. That's such an overload, isn't it? Like a cognitive overload when people are trying to work and be engaged in life and parent to add that Absolutely. on top. We've sort of, I think, hit pretty nicely on the the baseline physiology, which allows us to have some idea of the pathophysiology. The day-to-day monitoring in terms of blood sugar levels and we'll go into this a little bit deeper. The other thing we hear a lot about, and I wonder if junior members that aren't working with diabetes exclusively all the time have a great understanding, is that kind of more long-term monitoring with things like HbA1c. So that leads us beautifully, Jesse, actually into Hiker's number two point, which is self-management of diabetes, particularly the home blood glucose monitoring. Home blood glucose monitoring up until fairly recently is the bane of existence of people with diabetes. People know they need to take medications. They know they need it for best health. They know they need it literally to survive if you have type 1 diabetes. However, the monitoring of blood glucose, doing those finger prick readings to know where you are and where you're at is a drag. Mm. And it hurts. You eat, these are the sensitive pads of your fingers. But we can't tell by looking at someone. We can't tell by looking at their 
waist circumference or their weight, how well-controlled or not so well-controlled their diabetes is. Um, so the knowing where your blood glucose level is at any particular time prior to meals, if you need to adjust your insulin doses or the effect of the meal choices you have or the effect of your activity or the effect of alcohol intake, your effect of stress, all of these things affect your blood glucose levels. Now, historically we have had the finger prick readings and actually they are your accurate readings. They are checking your blood glucose level. We now have continuous glucose sensors, little sensors that sit within the interstitial fluid and are measuring interstitial glucose. And these can be sent to apps on people's phones so they can get a real time. But we're not looking just at the number. We are actually looking at the directional arrow. So, and people have always been judged against these numbers, um, that the numbers are good or they're bad. And so, I am then good or bad because of my number or because of what I've done um, and my behaviour has been wrong because now my number is not where I want it to be. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned the HbA1c, which is um, a measure over three months that gives a larger picture of what the glucose, um, I suppose, control has been. That is going a little bit now out of the front of head thinking of diabetes management um, because with these continuous glucose sensors we get what we call a timing range over a period of weeks so we can actually help people look at their patterns of their readings in a very detailed way they're an excellent teaching tool because they're pictures as well people find it hard to look a lot of people have I suppose, a form of numerical dyslexia. And, and I have it myself in a way. You look at this page of numbers, you think, oh, my goodness, you know, what's going on mm. here? But these put the numbers into a, a visual and we can see cause and effect. With blood glucose levels, we're not looking at the here and now number and reacting to it. Ideally, with diabetes, we're looking at the pattern. We've got a rear vision view. We're looking, okay, what's happened over the past week? Where have there been a pattern of glucose levels above target or below target, in target? Okay, let's focus on the good ones first. Sorry, I used that word good myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, what was your best day where things were looking in target for you and things, you seem to be getting everything in balance nicely. Um, let's focus on that, what and how and what was going on on that day. Mm. Now, is there a pattern of things that are under target? They're the danger ones. When we get rid of those, we'll also get rid of some of what we call the rebound highs, where people have um, treated under target levels and then they get this rebound afterwards. So we work with those ones first and then we will look at the ones that are above target. But it's working to look at the patterns of what's going on. And that's why home blood glucose monitoring is so important and so fundamental because. Diabetes is a silent disease. Mm. You, when your blood glucose levels are outrageously above target, you don't feel it usually. Yeah. They can be sitting above target for long periods of time and you can be absolutely blissfully unaware of the long-term damage that can be causing. 
So when when you say it sits below the skin, the new monitoring, like is it like inserted under the skin and then how long does it stay there for? It depends. There's uh, essentially three different brands of continuous glucose monitors. And, yeah, so the little sensor, which I suppose is the thickness of a thread of cotton, um, is very quickly fired into the skin, the top surface of the skin, by uh, through the bore of a larger needle on a very quick spring, so pokes and coat comes out, yep. and then the this that very fine sort of filament sensor is um, under the skin, and then taking a reading around every minute and sending that reading to a little storage sort of the button that sits. Well, I call the button yeah. <laughs> that sits on the top of the skin, uh, or sends it direct um, to a an, an app. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, if I'm a nurse on the ward, is there anything? And I've got a patient who comes in who has continuous monitoring in their arm. Is there anything that people need to be aware of for like cleaning or care or? Uh, no, try not to disturb it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that you don't put your uh, blood pressing. Um, pressure monitor over the top of it or when you're helping people wash that it's not going to get flicked out or pulled out. Um, I think the most important thing to remember is that this measures interstitial glucose. So there is a potential delay Mm -hmm. of what is a blood glucose. So the most important thing Still within the hospital here at Royal Brisbane, we are advising you still follow standard practice of doing blood glucose measures with a finger stick mm-hmm. at the um, protocol times, which is pre-meals and, and overnight. Um, but these are so useful to check in between. Yep. But when you're looking at the number, you're also looking at the directional arrow. Mm. So now, there, these sensors all have algorithms to try and make the sensor interstitial reading match with a blood glucose reading. But the thing is, in hospital, people are unwell. Mm. They're having lots of different medications. They're having lots of different fluid shifts. And this may actually make the sensor not as accurate or as close to accuracy as a blood glucose reading. So you would always double check it if not sure. And and people themselves, they know that. Um, If their sensor is saying, Uh, 4.6, but they're starting to feel hypo. When they do an actual finger prick to double check it, they may already be in a hypo. Yeah. So particularly if blood glucose levels are changing very rapidly, the blood level will show it. The uh, sensor may have a delay. So is the most important thing. So is anything under four, like is that categorised as a hypo or does it need to be lower than that? Okay, so in terms of education for people with diabetes, certainly um, health professionals, a hypoglycemic level is any level under four. Okay. Now, people won't necessarily get symptoms at four. For people who have had very long-standing diabetes, we can have something that's called impaired hypo-awareness. So that leads us perfectly into your number three point, which is understanding everything about hypoglycemia. Yeah. So hypoglycemia is, as we've just discussed, any reading under 4.0. However, people 
who have had long-standing diabetes can develop something called impaired hypo-awareness. Um, this also will be a factor in type 3C diabetes where if the person has had a partial pancreatectomy or a complete pancreatectomy, they do not have that hormone glucagon. So when the blood glucose level starts to go a little bit low, a message is sent to the pancreas from the brain saying, oh, my fuel supply is getting a bit low. Um, can you do something about this, please? So the pancreas sends a glucagon hormone message to the liver and the liver will turn on the glucose tap and start to rise the blood glucose level. Now, um, people who've had a total pancreatectomy don't have that hormone. So they will not get that first level awareness and action of um, uh, a hypo coming on. And their hypo-awareness will happen at a much lower level, under 3.6, perhaps around the 3.2 mark, where the adrenaline, so an, another hormone that's kicking in to say, look, do something about this, your flight fright. We're in, we're in strife. <laughs> yeah. Very strong. Um, can you please do something about this? Um, kicks in now. And this is why very often, I'll put my little air quotes in again, people are non-compliant because hypos feel dreadful. Mm. They are awful feelings, particularly the low ones. And they take a while to come out of. And you don't necessarily feel again right just after 10 minutes when the blood glucose level, when it's been treated correctly, has come up to back into normal range. Many people for the rest of the day feel rotten. And so they run their levels a little suboptimally, um, readings above target most of the time because they have had bad experience with hypos or they just do not like that feeling. Mm. So um, managing hypos is, is incredibly important. So it's a 15 gram load of a very quickly absorbed sugar. So this is where we talk about, you know, soft jube lollies or this is the time for about 120 mils of soft drink. Um, ideally, that's flat, so it gets swallowed easily. Um, that will rise the glucose level back up over four in normal range, hopefully within um, 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And we it's important to have about that 15 grams. Uh, on the ward, it's very easy to find three teaspoons of sugar and you just stir it up in a small amount of water. Mm. No great big glasses of water. You want this to go down. It's got to be a shot, not a easily. drink. <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, hypos often are undertreated or mistreated because even though they actually are a medical emergency, it is less glucose fuel getting to the brain, but it's a very simple treatment. It is three teaspoons of sugar and a little bit of water or four tubes or jelly beans. Um, but the really important thing is you have acted on this. You need to check the outcome of your action. So make sure you go back, redo that blood glucose reading and make sure that it has come up. And you need to think about the why did this happen? Because the ideal is we prevent hypos. We're not always going in to cause them. So this comes back to looking at patterns. But the reasons for hypos are my next point. Yeah. 
So point number four is how we understand, I guess, diabetes, medication and intervention. Yeah. So it's really important to know your medications. Now, if you know your pathophysiology, um, the actions of medications and how they work and how you're going to explain your medication actions to your patients, again, makes complete sense and very logical. Now, I suppose my most important point here is that for people who've had a total pancreatectomy or for people with type 1 diabetes, their long-acting insulin or insulin is life-sustaining. You cannot withhold insulin for any period of time without it having significant potential medical life consequences. So for people with type 1 diabetes, insulin... Um, well, let me just take a step back. Let me so insulins they come historically in Australia, one hundred units of insulin were in one mil. So that was the formulation, and we had calibrated syringes. Now we have now different formulations of insulin. We have um, high dose. So 300 units in one mil or 500 units in one mil. So it is incredibly important that you never, ever, ever withdraw insulin out of an insulin pen device using a syringe. If it comes in an insulin pen device, that is how it needs to be delivered. Um, Now, insulins. Um, we have very long-acting insulins, and there are ones they range between a 12-hour action profile to perhaps up to a 24-hour plus action profile, depending on the make and the brand of insulin. We have short-acting insulin. So those long-acting insulins for people with type 1 diabetes are their survival insulin. Mm. That insulin needs to match the small amount of glucose that the liver's putting out all the time. So we hear that often referred to in practice. We might hear that talked about as basal insulin. That's correct. Basal insulin or background insulin is the most important insulin for people with type 1 diabetes. Um, And and that's important too because, again, people get fixated on diabetes, food, need insulin with food. It's the background insulin that's really important. Um, Now, and then we have short or quick-acting insulins or what are often called bolus dosing insulins and these are the insulins that are designed to mimic that immediate response that the pancreas will put out for any sort of meal that is taken whether it's a teaspoon of sugar in your cup of tea or whether it's a, an 18 year old eating a huge pizza um, your body would normally respond with the amount of insulin that you require so people with type 1 diabetes are going to learn how much insulin do i need for my food they must Think that first. Then they'll be looking at, um, okay, am I going to be active? Am I going to be drinking alcohol? Am I really stressed? What is my blood glucose level now? How do I need to adjust this dose? You're so, getting very quickly to those 180 extra decisions. Yes, you are. Yeah. Every yeah. meal, every snack, yeah. everything I choose to do today. Mm. Anyway, so that's insulin. Um, the quick-acting insulins, ideally they're taken between 5 or 15 minutes before a meal mm-hmm. for best ideal practice. 
again, there will always be individual variations. Now, this is a problem with task-based activity on the ward, where often the one of the biggest issues that people with diabetes have is, I don't get my insulin before my meal. Yeah. Right. And then when I'm halfway through my meal, they take my reading, and then I have to have this extra insulin, and then I go low because the reading is reflecting what the meal has already started to rise, the yeah. blood glucose level. So ideally, insulin is taken 5 to 15 minutes pre the meal. Mm-hmm. Now, and the action profile is somewhere between three and a half, four hours. Yeah. And, and the blood sugar t- or the blood glucose test is taken pre-meal. And so, I d- yeah. that is taken yeah. pre-meal because then, yeah, if the glucose reading for someone with type 1 diabetes is in target, is in normal range, then, okay, I just need to think like a pancreas. I need to give for whatever carb load my meal has. Yeah. Um, or if I'm not eating any carbs in my meal, is my blood glucose above target because the amount of stress on I might need to give what we call a correction dose? Can I ask, what's an insulin pump? You know, uh, okay, so before I, yeah, um, an insulin pump is a little mini computer. You need to know still how to manage your blood glucose levels using insulin injections. However, pumps, um, they basically deliver insulin in um, a continuous fashion um, that is programmed in. So the individual's basal requirements and meal bolus requirements and correcting requirements have all been analysed and calculated out for that person and then that is programmed into the insulin pump. So an insulin pump is not a set and forget. They still need to manage this. Um, the cure, again, in my little air quotes, uh, for diabetes actually now at this point is a technology cure. So we've got continuous glucose sensors and pumps that are communicating together and the pump is delivering insulin in response now to what the information the continuous glucose sensor is giving. Yeah, and by cure, I want to make sure that everyone listening is getting the sense that it's that it's not curative. It doesn't cure the because uh, no. has <laughs> definitely put air quotes on this, yeah. but decreases the burden of ongoing management. Decreases decreases the burden of the disease for the yes, person who's got it, it takes, over time. Um, even though you know you still have to think about it, you, it's not a, as I said a set and forget, um, but it does take those constant thinking about it and adjusting yourself um, out of of the daily equations, yes. Diabetes medications have changed quite dramatically in, I'll say, the last seven years. Uh, And I feel a bit, it is very hard on GPs who have... For perhaps it's, about it's 30 hard, it's years. It's on emergency physicians and intensivists as well, I've got to yeah. say. <laughs> um, where for many decades we had one set sort of, of diabetes medication choices and then it added into quite quickly in a very short space of time. Now, one of these, and it's been very big in the media recently, there was a great big lot of articles in one of the uh, weekend newspapers of what are called the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, these are injectables. They are now a once a week injectable at this time. Um, 
and they're not insulin. They are what I call a, a sort of precursor hormone to insulin mm. and they're used um, predominantly for people with type 2 diabetes and they re- res- restore what we call the first phase insulin response but also work on the gut to sort of slow down the gut. So they have effect for weight loss um, but also improving blood glucose levels. So they're once a week injectables, they are not insulin. Mm. Um, and their pen devices are slightly different to insulin pen devices so we do need to teach those differences so some people with type 2 diabetes will be on these as well as perhaps insulin the other medication is a really interesting it's a tablet medication called an SGLT2 and um, it's I'm smiling here because it's a it started off as being predominantly a diabetes medication, but very quickly cardiologists and renal specialists have, wor- have worked out that it actually has significant benefits um, for renal disease and also heart failure. So there's a bit of a medical battle around who's managing this medication. Um, I, bet the, yeah. I bet the company that produced this is pretty happy though yes (laughs) Uh, but again um so there's a a whole lot of new medications that are really benefiting people with diabetes and we could be really clever with all of these and diabetes is so individual we can put it really individualize and we do try to really individualize people's medications to target their best health um, in also getting all this information, this really good information from glucose sensing devices. Yeah. Mm. I'm really curious to talk about your number five, um, which we really struggled to frame up because it's really about be mindful of shaming people with diabetes in the way that you talk about language, diet, and activity. And as soon as you were talking about the pathophysiology, you know, like I thought, this is that oversimplification, isn't it? That if you've got diabetes, this is on you. You know, this is like, this is your diet, your laziness, your whatever. And it's so much more complicated with that. And it's so much more um, nuanced, I guess, as we've got new treatments for other diseases that may trigger points of diabetes, you know, people to get diagnosed as well. Absolutely. Everyone, everyone with diabetes will say, I do not want this. I don't want it. I never asked for it. And I'll get a bit tearful here because we hear it all the time and that sort of um, uh, stereotypical view that diabetes is because you're not eating well, you're eating unhealthily. Yeah, you're not, you're lazy. You know, you could be doing better than this in your lifestyle. But if you looked after yourself, you could cure yourself of this, that sort of attitude, isn't it? Yes. And honestly, people do not want it. They never asked for this. And, um, yeah, so they feel blamed and shamed and judged. I am not my numbers. Mm. I am not this number right here and now that's sitting in front of you that you have just taken. This is, yeah, this is the number at this time, it is just a number. Mm. We need to perhaps act on this, um, but it is not you. You are a person with diabetes. You are not a diabetic. Yeah. 
Um, and when I first get down to someone who's just been diagnosed down in the emergency department, they have already, the first questions they ask are, what am I allowed to eat? So they've already got this sense of there's boundaries here of things I'm allowed to do and not allowed to do. And someone is making that decision for me yeah. as to what I'm allowed to and what I'm not allowed to do. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I will say, and I always say, look, I'm going to say, I sound like a start record, there is no such thing as a diabetic diet. Mm. We just want people to be eating healthily. If you have type 1 diabetes, yeah, look, I'm a health professional. I want people to eat healthy, you know. Um, and that goes for everyone that we, we see as nurses. Um, but we will teach you to think like a pancreas. How you, yes, you're going to need to um, adjust your insulin to what you're choosing to eat, and there is no easy way around that. That is a lot of self-knowledge and awareness and education, but that's what we're here to do. We're here to support you and provide you with that. Um I've, I've seen a significant adjustment in that because we have a mixed paediatric and adult ICU and a big proportion of our, at Redcliffe Hospital where I work in intensive care, Yes, a big proportion of our paediatric patients that we get are actually DKA, um, often first presentation or very early in their um, diagnosis and management strategies. The paediatric world is very much like very firmly gone into carb counting and yep. and I guess that is exactly pointing to what you're saying and we're seeing yeah, no. we'll see this generational shift where um, the adult diabetics in the community have gone through that pediatric training I guess if if it's juvenile onset I should say um, which has made that part of their life of thinking like a pancreas um, yes. which hopefully can help frame uh, empower some of the conversations. Well, there has been, I think, a total sort of shift in, I suppose, our, our medical and health model yeah. is that it is empowerment of the patient. Mm. It is holistic. And there was, um, I was at a, a, a conference workshop recently and how did this, um, it's a health professional who has type 1 herself and she said, the expert patient will see you now. The person... <laughs> They are the expert in themselves. Mm. I am coming to you because I need the, uh, that objective point of view, that, uh, those objective eyes, which isn't emotionally involved with, I've never done everything right and yet my levels are not where I want them to be. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that objective point of view that doesn't have that emotional involvement can see what's going on here. Yeah. Um, these are the things that I want and need support in. I'm the expert in myself. Please, I'm here. I'm asking you. This is where I want some input, please. I guess the other thing that I've really picked up on what you've been saying today is that if someone presents either, you know, with a very high, you know, outside, what do you call it, outside the target, target, target. <laughs> outside of target or lower than target, you know, it may not be um, – have anything to do with lifestyle, it may be, well, I guess stress is lifestyle, but it may be there's too much stress in the household or they, they've been caring for sick children and, you know, their body chemistry is out of alignment because of that, 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 that we should be looking really holistic at these patients, haven't, shouldn't we? Absolutely. And, and life changes. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
a very clear one is during during pregnancy, which has enormous changes in blood glucose control. But, you know, adolescents with growth hormone, yeah. there's only one hormone that lowers glo- blood glucose readings, and that's insulin. There are all your counter-regulatory hormones, your glucagon, your adrenaline, your growth hormone, that all put blood glucose level up. And all of these also are um, stress hormones as well, cortisol, all put blood glucose levels up. There's something what people call the dawn phenomena where that around 3 a.m. where your cortisol really sort of kicks in that get up and go, um, people get a rise of their blood glucose level at that 3 a.m. You can't increase their insulin the night before, otherwise they'd go low. They wake up with this high reading. There's nothing they can do about that. No. No. Does menstruation and like menopause and things like that interfere with insulin? Uh, Definitely um, women's monthly periods do. Generally, uh, again, it's highly individual and, and it's just by looking and watching those patterns to see uh, often perhaps those three or four days just before the period, um, women may see their blood glucose levels go up. Some actually see their blood glucose levels go down. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it, again, over that long-term view, and this is again with the apps, with these continuous glucose sensors where People can put in little notes very quickly and easily that, again, over time we can start to see, oh, yeah, that's a a bit of a monthly pattern. Yeah. Yeah, this is what happens when I go to a hit class. (laughs) This is what happens (laughs) when I do weights. Yeah. Or this is um, a a competition game, a lot of adrenaline. Mm. You know, this is a training game. Yeah. It's all general, uh, general social, you know. Mm. Um, so the effects of activity and differences there. Or for people who are really looking at, okay, how do my different meal choices affect my levels? So, okay, I'm going to try these sort of cereals and see what happens. Yeah. Or I'm going to try just having a sort of protein break and see, see what happens there. Yeah. Or actually um, I'm wanting, you know, uh, to change how and what I do with my um, meals. Perhaps I, I do want to lose some weight. Um, so I need again to watch and see what's going on with my patterns. And the thing with type 2 diabetes is that um, under a really good multidisciplinary team with psychologists and dietitians, uh, people can go on to very low energy diets with good support and people can go into remission. But that's hard yakka. And I suppose in terms of putting a cap on 0.5, which is that avoiding language, language of shame, and that, that is kind of inherent to paternalistic healthcare models. Yes. It, yep. It's really important for us to recognise our privilege as health te- healthcare practitioners, certainly in Australia. By general community standards, we're well paid. Yes, we have, we, we have mm. opportunity to keep ourselves healthy. Healthy. We've got the knowledge through our healthcare practitioner trainings to have that higher level knowledge than mm. the general community. So all of our assessments slash judgments um, slash biases come from a position of privilege. Yes, and power. I wanted to hit, really emphasise that cap that we are in a privileged position, and mm. with that privilege comes great responsibility. There you go, Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. and we're, I guess we also wanted you to kind of round this off of like, this is such a big topic. It's something that we said, you know, our junior workforce have just raised continuously as something that they need more education. If I'm um, a nurse on, on the ward and I'm looking after a patient who's got a great complexity and diabetes is part of that complexity, where can I get more information, help and support? 
Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, do link into your diabetes educator team in the hospital, but most hospitals are very under-resourced. Ideally, we would have a diabetes educator on every ward because about 20, 24% at any one time will potentially have diabetes. 24% of all patients in the potentially, hospital? Wow, yeah. that's huge. It is. It is, and that came out of the inpatient audit, much higher than I had ever, uh, historical um, evidence anyway. Yeah. Um, so... Um, certainly there's the post-grade certificate in, in diabetes, whether you want to be a diabetes educator or not. Um, uh, health professional portal or information through Diabetes Australia is another good resource. Um, here at Royal Brisbane, we run something called the Diabetes Fundamental, which is a sort of three-hour workshop, and we're going to perhaps hopefully be expanding it perhaps to a day, which... Um, yeah, and we use lots of visual tools as well. Um, yes, so yeah, Diabetes Australia Health Professionals, the Australian Diabetes Educators Association, um, and your own institution, Diabetes Educators. Um, and they're all there to help. You go to. Right. Bear with me while I try and summarise this massive uh, amount of education. So five things we need to understand about diabetes. Number one was know your pathophysiology. And I guess the big key points here are there are a number, a range of types of diabetes. Um, type one, uh, type two is not just lifestyle. It can also have a genetic predisposition to it. So it doesn't have to be purely that the person has failed to look after themselves. So be really mindful of judgments around that. And then there are a whole range of um, diabetes that develop as a result of cancer treatments, steroids, if you've had any sort of surgery to your pancreas. Uh, number two was around self-management of the home blood glucose monitoring. And I guess the, the really interesting things is that this has really developed. There's some continuous monitoring that has happened. If we have a patient with that, be mindful not to knock it, don't put a blood pressure cuff, uh, et cetera, on that. And that there's a very big burden of on the patients uh, with their whole regime of what they have to do to look after their diabetes that we need to be mindful of. And when they're on the wards, do the glucose checks before they eat and make sure they receive their insulin five to 15 minutes before a meal. Very important. Number three was talking to us about hypoglycemia and clinically anything under a range of target range of four is hypoglycemia and it is a medical emergency. We need to respond to that immediately. Um, a really quick fix is three teaspoons of sugar in a very small shot of water. Um, but the important thing is once we've treated the hypoglycemia to go back and then see what's happening um, with blood sugars and the diabetes symptoms at that point. Number four was around understanding diabetes medication, um, the tablets, the insulin, and the various ways that that is now delivered, and that our patients will be probably the experts in that, and we need to listen and pay attention to what they're saying. 
Number five is for us to be really mindful of our language as healthcare professionals. As Jesse said, we come from a place of privilege in terms of our wage and what we can buy and how we can eat and what we understand about health. But diabetes is not just a lifestyle disease. And so to be really important that we're not shaming or blaming or placing guilt when we have a patient who are outside the target range for glucose, that can be due to a whole range of factors. And so we need to work with our patients when we're addressing all issues to do with diabetes. How did I go? (laughs) Very good. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things. 